Thanks for joining our YouTube channel. If you haven't done so already, please click that subscribe button to join our community. That way you get notified each and every week a message pops up. With that being said, we pray that this message encourages and inspires you to take one step closer to Jesus. What is up? Some of you are not happy to see me at all. You're like, okay, hey, pastors, what's up? For the rest of you, what's up, guys? Super excited to see you this morning. Uh, welcome to Arise. If you're new to our church, my name is Brent. I get the privilege of being your lead pastor, and we're going to continue to experience God together today. Uh, I want to quickly say this. We have uh, been advertising. There's a special announcement coming this morning, so we get to announce that right now. Are you ready? Yeah. I'm going to give you a drum roll, like a fake drum roll. Come on, everybody. Come on. There's like half of you. All right, starting on Easter Sunday, we are going to three services here at the Brandon Campus. Super exciting for that. Uh, we want to create more space for people to experience God. Your coworkers, your friends, your family who are far from God right now are this close to coming into a place like this or even through your life, experiencing God and taking those steps of faith. And so starting on Easter Sunday, we're going to have an 830, 10, and 11:30 uh, service. Some of you aren't here till 1130 anyway. So you'll be right on time. Just pretend nothing changed. For some of the others, uh, you know, just uh, uh, we're changing up these times. Uh, 8.30 service, though, so you can share this with friends and family and such. 8.30 service, as we start, will be masked only. Uh, so the only thing touching you in that service will be the Holy Spirit. Come on, somebody. Okay? Uh, so the Holy Spirit will be the only thing touching you. It's going to be a touch-free, mask-only service in that uh, 8.30 service. Really kind of honed in on the only thing we need to have church is people and God. If you show up and God shows up, we, got to have, we can have church. And so we don't need all of the hype. And so that service will kind of start that way. It won't have all of the ins and outs. Uh, there won't be a, a prayer team because it's touch-free. Uh, there won't be a, a hospitality team necessarily, at least not many. There won't be a parking team or cafe because that service is going to start that way touch-free. So if you know somebody that right now would love to come to church but they can't uh, because of that, um, bring them or invite them. Get them here at 830 starting on Easter Sunday. Okay? So that is, is super, super exciting. We want to create space for more people to experience God. Here's the question. What do we need to have, church? Where's my staff at? Y'all better answer that. What do you need to have, church? God's presence. God's presence. Let me hear you. What do you need to have, church? God's presence. The only thing you need to have, church, is God's presence. If you have God's presence, you have all you need, and God's going to show up, and it's going to be awesome. Okay, so that's a big announcement coming up. Also, just want to mention this. Uh, throughout this year, as you recall, we are taking each month and celebrating a different spiritual discipline. Uh, this month is all about stewardship. Um, so I want to want to quickly just mention this. I, I want to quickly mention the why behind why we're doing this. Uh, there's a difference between followers and disciples. Followers will follow the Lord from a distance. They applaud the Lord. They love the benefits of the Lord. They're in the crowd of the five thousand who gets fed by the by the. Excuse me. I feel like I have something in my throat. They get fed by the uh, uh, by the fish and loaves. Uh, they're the ones that applaud Jesus from a distance. They celebrate Jesus from a distance. They worship, but it's from a distance. Disciples are the ones who say, I want to look like Jesus. I want right. to act like Jesus. Yeah. I want to lay right. hands on the sick like Jesus and they be healed. Disciples are the ones that actually take Christianity seriously. We live in a world with a whole lot of followers and not a lot of disciples. I want to lead a church full of disciples. Come on, y'all. Yeah. So every, every month we are focusing on a different discipline because discipline is what makes disciples. And so we discipline our life to look like Jesus. Uh, and that's also very important because I believe there's coming a day in America 
uh, where there's going to be more and more persecution put on the church. As that happens, followers will not survive that persecution. Disciples will thrive amidst the persecution. They will be extremophiles. Come on, y'all. They will thrive amidst it. So we want to create disciples in our church. So each month, we're focusing on a different spiritual discipline. This month is stewardship. Steward your time well. Put God first and foremost in your time. And then secondly, steward your finances well. Uh, if you've been around church or not around church or what have you, and you're like, church only wants my money. Let me be very clear about this. I don't want something from you. I want something for you. Right. Um, and here's the big deal. When persecution comes, if the economy hurts or tanks, I need God's blessing on my money more than I ever have. People say, I can't afford to tithe. If you say you can't afford to tithe, you probably need to tithe in that moment more than you ever did before. Yeah. Because you need the blessing of God in your life, in the moments, especially when it gets hard. And so when you tithe, you put God first, it allows God's hand to be on your money. So, uh, so just a thought, and we will keep mentioning that throughout this month as we continue on. All right, let's get started in the message. I believe the Lord is going to speak to somebody this morning. Are you ready? Yes. So, so there's, this, there's this thing... Uh, called a hero bias that some of us suffer from. In fact, I would say we probably all, to one degree or another, suffer from hero bias. Hero bias basically says this. When we make heroes out of somebody, it's really hard for us to admit that they're not heroes or that they have flaws or that they're not perfect because we really want them to be perfect. We really want them to be great. Um, and so uh, this hit me hard a few years ago uh, because you might not like this or whatever, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm a fan of Bill Cosby. I've loved Bill Cosby. I grew up with the Cosby show. Even before that, I grew up with records. Some of y'all don't even know what that is. I grew up with records of Bill Cosby stand-up stuff, and they were awesome because they were always clean. The only time he ever cussed is when he was quoting his dad. Like, they were always clean. I could listen to him as a kid. So I grew up with, like, Bill Cosby being a hero. So when everything kind of came out about this other life he was living... I'm like, I don't want to admit that's even true, right? That's a hero bias. Now, we see it right now with Robbie Zacharias. Now, he's passed away, and all this stuff kind of comes out. And for many of us, we're just, like, shocked and in awe. Like, this can't be true, partially because of the hero bias. Uh, it could come into play with uh, another one of my heroes, Martin Luther King Jr. We all love Martin Luther King Jr. We love to quote Martin Luther King Jr. We have MLK Day. I actually tag-teamed, preached one time with, with MLK uh, on the screens. We tag-teamed. Anybody remember that? It was fun. Um, uh, but we want to look over the fact that he did have some girlfriends and things like that in towns and some of that that went on. And we want to look over that. It's a hero bias. And so when we have a hero bias, we focus on the hero and kind of diminish anything he ever did wrong or she ever did wrong. You with me? All right, the Bible is kind of full of this uh, because the Bible tells the story from different vantage points. Now, when we talk about the story of David and Bathsheba, now I will unpack it in a minute for you guys who are like, who are they? But when we talk about the story of David and Bathsheba, we tend to focus on it with a hero bias. David is the hero. We focus all the attention on David. We focus on his repentance, his coming back to God, everything that he did wrong and right. We focus on him, and we tend to pretty much ignore Bathsheba. She's kind of like this part of the story that, yeah, she was there. In fact, if I asked you anything about David and Bathsheba or about Bathsheba, despite the fact that she did some other things in the Bible, the only thing you probably ever heard of her was David and Bathsheba. And um, sometimes we need to share the other side of the story. You do know there's two sides to every story, right? Yeah. Some people would say there's three sides, your side, my side, and the truth. <laughs> there's always two sides to every story. If you've ever done marriage counseling, <laughs> there's always two sides to every story, but that's another message. But what we want to do over the next few moments is actually look at the story of David and Bathsheba 
But we want to look at it not from the traditional view of David. We want to look at it from the perspective of Bathsheba. And I think as we do that, there's going to be some light bulbs go off. There's going to be some powerful moments where we get revelation of things God is speaking to us this morning. Uh, if you want to turn there, first or, or Second Samuel uh, chapter number 11 is where we're going. Um, uh, the Bible is divided into these two sections, kind of like uh, Old Testament, New Testament. Testament's just a, a fancier word for covenant. There's an old covenant with Israel and a new covenant with the people of God in the New Testament. Uh, and so we divide it into both sides. Uh, this is under the old covenant, which mainly focuses all of the journey of Israel and the history of the world, all through the, the Israel story. Um, and that's important to us as believers because we follow a Jewish Messiah who was uh, the Lord of heaven and earth, who... who, who uh, was the, um, the promised Messiah of Judaism. So it's important for us to understand that tradition. And because uh, some people might say, why do we care? Um, that's why. It's very important. That's, that's where Christianity grew out of is Judaism. And so we celebrate it still to this day. And in 2 Samuel, there's a prophet by the name of Samuel who takes upon himself to write an account of Israel's history that, from his vantage point from that time period. And so he's writing, and he's writing the story of David and Bathsheba. And one of the many things I love about the Bible is that it's not so one-sided that you only see the good things about people. You also see the negative. Um, and so you see this negative story about David with Bathsheba that's about to come up. So with that being said, it's a little bit of a longer passage we're going to read today. So I'm going to let my amazing wife uh, read it. And uh, it's two passages in chapter 11, and then we're going to jump to chapter 12 in a second. But go ahead, babe. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at that entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where he is fighting the fiercest, where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. 
We're going to jump to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. All right, before we jump into chapter 12, let me give you the, the nugget in between. A prophet by the name of Samuel goes to David, tells him this parable uh, that David doesn't realize is about him until David realizes that, and then he's, he's just completely uh, repentant and shocked and can't believe the mess that he has found himself getting into. Uh, he's basically called out, but instead of fighting that, he repents. Uh, and then uh, Nathan says, because of what you've done, this child's going to end up dying. So let's pick up the story in uh, chapter 12. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying on sackcloth, in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. All right, let's, let's jump into this story. And we have all heard, at least most of you have heard this story from the perspective of David uh, so many times that you know it very well. But what if we flip the script and share this story from the perspective of Bathsheba? Nobody ever does that. In fact, it's almost crazy to hear the story from her vantage point. So if we flip the script, let's just talk about Bathsheba for a little bit. The, the, the little bit we know about Bathsheba. First of all, Bathsheba started with everything. She comes from this successful family. She comes from this family uh, that, that seems to be living so close to the palace that David can see her. That means clout all by itself. But it's probably because Bathsheba's father was one of David's buddies and original mighty men of Israel. One of those mighty men that fought alongside of David, that's Bathsheba's daddy. But not only that, her granddad, her grandfather, was one of David's wisdom councilmen. He's one of the people that David would go to when he wanted wisdom. And so she grows up in this family where she has a lot given to her automatically. She's blessed right off the bat just because of who her daddy and her granddaddy is. At the same time that you see that she is beautiful, the Bible says. So she's probably somebody that lots of people wanted to marry. And, and if you were to do the, the, the lineage and, and do the timetables, you come up with a date that she would be about 21 years old when this whole scenario happens. And so she's this young woman who is probably a newlywed because it seems that she has not had a child yet. And she's a newlywed who has just married the man of her dreams. Uriah the Hittite. Every girl wanted Uriah the Hittite. He was one of the 30 mighty men at this point. The mighty men of Israel that David looked at as, as, as had all the heroics and had done all these things bigger, stronger, faster, tougher, whatever. They were like, you know, Uriah, Uriah, he's our man. And they all loved Uriah. She's the one who scored Uriah. And so, so, so Uriah becomes her husband. But don't think that he is just a man of strength and brute. Because as we just found out in the story, Uriah 
is also a man of incredible integrity and character. He is a man with an extreme amount of loyalty to King David. So it's not just that he's some big brooding MMA fighter that might intimidate everybody around him. He also seems to be a good man. Somebody who would love his wife, who would care about his wife. And so you see this, this beautiful story of them coming together when you kind of piece the puzzle together. You see this beautiful story of them coming together, and he's probably the man of her dreams and all excited. And Uriah has now gone away into battle, and so she's probably walking around the house, counting down the days until he comes back to her. And so she's married this man, this, this, this elite man, who, by the way, is kind of like her own father. Her dad was one of David's mighty men. Now she marries one of David's mighty men because that's what you do when you have a great father. You end up marrying somebody like your daddy, right? And she seems to be, by all accounts, a good girl. Uh, she is following the Jewish religious laws, the Levitical laws, and when she has her monthly and cleanliness time, she needs to go bathe. And she seems to go late in the evening when there's not many people around, not many folks around, goes onto the roof of her house where nobody can see her unless they're in the palace. And she seems to be uh, uh, being modest. Now, you could say, well, she shouldn't have done that. Well, maybe she shouldn't have, but it doesn't, nowhere in this story paints a picture where she's trying to seduce David or purposely trying to be immodest. In fact, we didn't read it, but if you read Nathan's uh, uh, account with David, you see that Nathan paints David as the evil villain and her as the helpless damsel. And so you don't see that at all in this passage. She seems to be attempting to be modest, following the religious law, having no idea that David's up here being a peeping Tom out of his, his temple, his, his palace. Uh, which, by the way, I've been there. If you ever go to Israel with us, you can go there with us. And from that hill where David's ruins are, where his palace is, you can look and you can see every, every roof in the area because it's on a hill. So you can totally see how David was doing this. Uh, beyond that, she might not have even realized that David was there. He's supposed to be off fighting battles, as we read. He's supposed to be off with the soldiers. So she may not have even realized that he's even in the house. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah. So you have this woman who has built a life, 21-year-old young lady, who stone upon stone has built her life, and things seem to be going pretty well. Are you with me? Yeah. I mean, life is good if you're Bathsheba. Um, you know, yeah, she has to wait on, on Uriah to come home, and, and yeah, things like that, but life is pretty good for this girl. She's got the man of her dreams. And then everything begins to collapse around her because Bathsheba has everything taken so, again, looking at it from her perspective, not David's, she doesn't realize what all is happening behind the scenes. And so, all of a sudden, Bathsheba, after her bath, is going downstairs, you know, maybe putting on her clothes, whatever, doing all the thing, getting all ready. And all of a sudden, she gets a knock on the door. The knock on the door is a servant from the king's household that says, hey, you need to come see, see, see the king. You need to come to the palace. She's probably wondering what in the world is going on. She doesn't seem to have ever met David because David did not recognize her, didn't know who he was. So maybe she's thinking, maybe I'm going to the palace to meet my dad, my granddad. Maybe David's going to tell me that he's sending Uriah home early. That would be amazing, right? And so she's summoned to the palace with probably great anticipation only to get into the palace and find out that David is not the hero she thought he was. If you do the math, David is about 50 years old. Bathsheba is about 21 years old. David is the conquering hero 
of Israel. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel at this time, and everybody's celebrating him for that. He has fought battles and won victories. He's still David and Goliath David. Everybody loves him. He's the man of God who dances before the Ark as it comes back in. He is this guy that she probably grew up singing songs about. She's the young girl that grew up hearing about the exploits of David and maybe hearing stories from her own father talking about the exploits he did with David and conquering the enemy. And and she's grown up all of her life singing praises to David because he's our king. He's the best. He's 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 the king of Israel. He's God's man. And all of a sudden, she ends up in this encounter with David where he uses his positional authority to sleep with her. Now, I want you to hear this because I want to be very careful the words I use. If we say the word rape, it tends to put images in our heads of this violent act. It, It may not have been like a violent act, but if she is loyal to the king, she has to acquiesce to what he's requesting. It has to happen that way. And so he is using his authority in the most egregious possible way. This is a serious abuse of power. And then after that's done, after the deed's done, the fair has happened, she gets sent right back home. Can you imagine what's going through her mind walking back home? Opening the door where Uriah is no longer in the house to an empty house where she wants to have kids one day with Uriah. Opening the door, walking into whatever servants she may have because of her success and going, what just happened? This is the man I grew up idolizing. This is the man who's the great hero of Israel. What just happened? Can you imagine the mental anguish she's going through and the questions that are bombarding her mind in that moment? This can't happen. There's some of you in this room. You don't have to imagine because you've lived it. Especially young ladies. It could be guys too, but especially young ladies. That it was an uncle or a grandfather or a friend of the family, that everybody held in high esteem, and then things happen behind closed doors that nobody knows about, and you may have never told anybody about, because that's the next thing. Who does Bathsheba tell? She can't tell her friends and family. This is David. This is the king. This is the one that has slain his thousands, his tens of thousands. Who's she going to tell? They won't believe her. He's the hero. <coughs> and so maybe as they... As she hears people singing praises to David, maybe she starts cursing him under her breath. What in the world has happened? Her whole world has been turned upside down. I've seen memes that say my whole childhood, my whole childhood was a mistake. My whole childhood was a lie because you realize something you didn't know. And what just happened to Bathsheba? This is crazy. And then, as if things couldn't get worse, a few weeks later, she starts to realize I'm pregnant. In fact, the only three words that Bathsheba says that we have an account of in this whole passage, later we have words from her, but in this passage, the only three words that we hear her say is, I am pregnant. Consider the weight of those three words. I am pregnant, but my husband is a hundred miles away fighting battles. I am pregnant. What is he going to think? What is my daddy going to think? What is my granddaddy going to think? The wisdom leaders of Israel. This was huge. This was enormous. Nobody's going to believe this was David's baby. 
What's everybody going to think? She had to be wondering, like, her whole world's been turned upside down. Will David even admit this is his child? Because this is a key moment. If David does not admit this is his child, her whole life is destroyed. Even with David admitting, it's already bad enough. But if she doesn't admit, now she's going to look like she's had an affair with somebody. Now Uriah is never going to stay married to her. Her family will likely kick her out. This is a different era than it is nowadays, y'all. Her family would likely kick her out. More than likely, she would end up the rest of her life as a prostitute because that's what happened in those kind of moments. You talk about, you talk about building something that all comes crashing down. She's built this life, and then all of a sudden it's taken away from her. So she sends word to David. Okay? There is no reason to believe that she knows David's plan. Now, she's a smart girl. She probably figured it out somewhere along the line. But it doesn't seem like her, him and Bathsheba got together and they planned this thing out. This is like David doing David's stuff. And so she sends word to David, hey, bro, like this thing you did. Yeah, I'm pregnant now. All of a sudden, she may or may not have ever heard back from David. All of a sudden, with all these doubts and questions in her mind, Uriah comes home. How did that meeting go? How did, have you ever, have you ever been, anybody married in this room? If you're married, you know there can be tension in the house that neither side understands. You got Bathsheba who is all this mental anguish and pressure and anxiety that she's under. Uriah, meanwhile, has his whole, his whole family, so to speak, his military family out fighting battles. He doesn't want to necessarily be home, we see in the story. So you got this tension inside this household that neither one of them want to necessarily talk about because if he says, I don't want to be here because I need to be with my men, she doesn't like it. And if she says, I, I can't be with you because of what David did, he's not going to handle that so well. What does she do? Does she tell Uriah? Well, apparently she didn't in the story. Maybe she's trying to protect David. Maybe she's trying to protect Uriah because if she tells Uriah, he's going to try to kill David and David will end up... Are you with me? So, so all this is going through her mind. All this stress and... And suddenly he comes home. And, and it's funny to me. Like, like and, and obviously I'm not saying the Bible's inaccurate. That's not what I'm saying. But the Bible shows this picture that's always from a male perspective because of the way it was written. And so, so the Bible says that, that Uriah didn't sleep with her because he was honorable. And even once he got drunk, stayed outside the house because he was worried about his, his soldiers. I'm not saying that's not true. But I am saying you have a woman with a lot on her mind that may not be that interested in him either. Come on, put the pieces together. Maybe she's not exactly trying to seduce him in this moment. Maybe she was violated the last time she was with a man. She doesn't even know how to talk to Uriah right now. Maybe that tension in the household had something to do with that a little bit as well. Come on, any married people in the room? And you see this, this tension being played out right in front of us. So, 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 so Uriah then leaves. Can you imagine that goodbye kiss? Like, how awkward of a goodbye kiss was that goodbye kiss? It's like, you came home for a weekend. It was really weird between us. Love you, baby. You know, like, that's an awkward goodbye kiss. So she kisses him goodbye, apparently having no idea that was the last time she would ever kiss him or see him again. The next news she hears, again, she doesn't know what David has planned behind the scenes. She might have figured it out after all of a sudden Uriah comes home out of nowhere. But the next step... He goes off to battle again, and she gets word that he's died in battle. And the Bible's very clear. She is heartbroken. 
She is devastated. This was her love. This was the one that she wanted to spend her life with. This is the one that she grew up looking at and, and wanted to be with. And, and, and they get married and they wanted to have a family and have kids and grow up. But now he's dead. Does she know that David had anything to do with it? I'm just saying, if she's got half a brain in her mind, she knows there was something there. Something going on there. And, and, and as if matters could not get worse, she's heartbroken broken over Uriah. And then David, now you got to look at it from her perspective. David takes her into his house as one of his wives. He says, oh, are you going to be with me now? That's his way of covering it up. But I want you to see this. To every outsider looking at this story, they said, oh, look how great David is. He's such a man of character. One of his men die in battle, and he's going to protect his wife. He's going to take her into his household and watch over her and take... And so probably everybody is going, oh, David's such a good man. He's such more care. They're probably writing more songs about David at this point. And Bathsheba's going, what? Huh? Now you want to look good? Now you want to look good? And now you want to bring me in so people can talk about your integrity and how much you loved Uriah, that you would take care of his wife? Are y'all with me? Yeah. I know y'all never heard this side of the story before. We're going somewhere, though. <clears throat> so he takes her in like that. <laughs> I, I can't help but wonder, <laughs> like, like, what if, you know, she's got morning sickness at this time period, so she's puking in the morning. What if she's not puking because of morning sickness? What if she's puking every time she looks at David? I'm just saying. I know we have this hero bias with David, but Bathsheba has been done wrong. I also want to point this out. I don't want to take a big rabbit trail, but I just want to point this out. Nowhere in this passage do you see abortion ever mentioned as an option. It's because it is not an option. I don't care the circumstances. I don't care what happened. I don't care how it happened. It is not an option. And so you don't, say, you don't hear David trying to get her to abort. You don't see her doing that. It is not an option. But that's a whole side note. And so you don't see that. And now all of a sudden she ends up in David's harem. I have to wonder, because, because at this point, at this point, um, she has this one little glimmer of hope. Now again, there's no reason to believe that she knows that Nathan the prophet has come and visited David. We don't know anything about that. She's just seeing things from her vantage point. So at this point, she has this one little glimmer of hope. Yes, life stinks, but I'm going to have this child and I can rebuild with this child, so to speak. I can, I can make something of my life. I, can, I have something. I have to love this child. I have, to, I have to woman up, so to speak, and take care of this child. And then she has the child, and the child dies. You know, victims of abuse almost always blame themselves. I can't help but wonder, when Uriah died, did she go, it's my fault he's dead. It's my fault. I didn't do enough to say no. I didn't do it. I should have never done this. I should have never done that. Is she blaming herself? And then she has her child die. Even the child amidst what's going on, she has this child who passes away. Is she blaming herself? Is she heartbroken herself? What have I done? This is my fault. You see David's repentance. You see David crying out for the Lord. But trust me, I can't imagine a mama who's also not crying out to the Lord over this. You just hear the story from David's perspective. 
So she's probably fasting just as he was and crying out to God and feeling that pressure, blaming herself, feeling guilty. You know, when you read the Bible, you really have to put yourself into the Bible because this funny thing happens at the end of the whole passage. The last verse that Ada read a minute ago says this. It says that David went to comfort, went in and comforted Bathsheba and she became pregnant again. You tell me who was getting comforted there. <clears throat> he might have went in with the intention of comforting Bathsheba. I'm just saying. I know y'all can't admit this stuff in church because David's the hero and he wrote the Psalms and we love David, but there's this other side of David too. I don't know how much comforting came to Bathsheba when she suddenly gets pregnant again. <laughs> and we'll keep going in a second. But I, but I want us to see this. All of a sudden, she's been building this life all this time. She's been building this life with Uriah. She's built a home. She's picked out curtains. She's picked out tile for the, for the dining room. She's picked out everything. She's got the house. She's built it. She's excited. She's hoping one day to have a baby with Uriah. She ends up with a baby with David. She's built this life. It's successful. She's got a nice home. Things seem to be going the right way. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the life gets destroyed. And she was not at fault. And everything she has built upon gets knocked down in a moment from somebody that wasn't her. She didn't do it. It wasn't her fault. Came out of nowhere. I wonder, can you relate? Can you relate? You, you live in your life. You built your life. You did the very best that you can. You're striving to follow Jesus. You're a good person. You're trying to do the right things. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in 2020, you lost your job. And all of a sudden, your legs just got wiped out from under you. And it wasn't your fault. And everything you had built gets destroyed. And you find yourself laying on your back with the wind knocked out of you going, God, what was that? You've built this life and you're way too young to hear the doctor's report that says you got cancer. And all of a sudden, you're broken. Going, God, I built this whole life. I had these plans, but now they're not giving me much longer to live. You raised this child. She was a sweetheart. He was a sweetheart. You loved him to death. And all of a sudden, you're not getting calls from the child. You're getting calls from the sheriff's department. And you built this life that was good. And it's not your fault. But things start knocking your walls down. And everything you built starts collapsing. You went to college like you were supposed to. Got the job you wanted to get. Built a nest egg. And then 2020 happened. COVID happened. And you lost your job and you're watching your nest egg dwindle month by month. You did everything right. And then somebody else's actions Somebody else's decisions destroy you. And you're so irritated by it. What is going on? This is not the way it's supposed to be. I built something that was good. I didn't do this. Can you somebody relate to this? But somebody else's actions, somebody else's decisions destroyed my reality of what I wanted and what I expected. And this is so key. What happens next? 
What happens next is crucial to Bathsheba's story, and it's crucial to your story. Because in this moment, you can sit back and complain about God and complain about life, and we can talk about how life's not fair and this and that, and we can sit back and we can spend the rest of our life in pity and shame and wallowing in everything that went wrong and how it wasn't your fault. I know it wasn't your fault. God knows it wasn't your fault. But she begins to rebuild on the very things that were broken. She begins to rebuild on the very things that were destroyed. So, so, So maybe... And I have to see it this way, even though we're telling the story from Bathsheba's perspective. David is a man of deep repentance. You cannot read the Psalms, even repenting in the Psalms for this very act. He's a man of deep repentance and public repentance. I have to imagine that when it says he went to comfort her, he really was legitimately repenting before her. Because that's the story of David. That's the way he was. That's his nature. That's what we love about King David. That even though he failed miserably, even in those moments, he was still a man of true repentance and starting back over and trying to keep his heart right before God. But her reaction to David's repentance would be enormous. How is she going to respond? (coughs) How is she going to react to this man who's repenting before her? I want us to see this, especially in our current culture. Neither Bathsheba nor the Bible cancels David. You can cancel the very thing that hurts you that you're going to build upon later if you're not careful. Neither the Bible nor, nor Bathsheba cancels David. She didn't say, I have nothing to do with you ever again. She didn't go out Romeo and Juliet and kill herself and have suicide or, you know, something like that. Well, you killed Uriah. I'm going to drink this poison. Whatever. She doesn't do any of that. She takes when life gives her lemons and she starts making lemonade. Listen, for the record, grace does not cancel. That's right. I know we live in a world that loves to cancel people without ever hearing another side. There's always two sides, and we love to cancel people. Grace does not cancel. In fact, Peter said, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That does not mean you let people keep walking on you and hurting you over and over, but it does mean you do not cancel them. You cannot win them to Jesus if you've canceled them. We got to be different than the rest of the world. Can somebody give me an amen? We got to be different than the rest of the world. So, So she starts rebuilding her life, picking up brick after brick and starts rebuilding her life. She starts building a tell. A tell. Most of us in this room, you have no idea what the word tell means. If you've been to Israel, I hope you do if you've been with me, because we've talked at length about it, if you haven't forgotten. (laughs) A tell, a tell. In archaeology, a tell is where it's an artificial hill that gets built from civilizations being destroyed and then rebuilt upon time after time and time until the rebuilt ruins from the past start to make a hill. You see this all over Israel. In fact, when you fly into Israel, you will fly into Tel Aviv. Anybody ever noticed that before? Now, Tel Aviv is not actually a tell, but it's named after tells. But you will visit like Tel Megiddo when you're there. There's a picture of it at the top right. And you will visit like Tel Dan. These are, these are cities, uh, places that were destroyed by invading armies. And when the next civilization started to build, they didn't have bulldozers back then. Come on, y'all. 
So they didn't just wipe everything out and start over. They simply built on the, rumble, uh, the rambles of what was left over, the, the, rumble, the rubble of what was left over. So they, they would fix things back together and then rebuild. So archaeologists, especially in places like Israel that are so old, archaeologists talk about every four or five feet, six feet or so that you dig when you go down, you actually start finding another civilization. Because they didn't have a bulldozer to take it all out, they just built upon what was already there. A really good example that you can literally see is in the bottom right picture right there is the Wailing Wall in, in Israel, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Uh, look at the bricks on the Wailing Wall. Do you notice a difference as they go up? Yeah. If you know what you're doing, there's actually four civilizations represented in just what you can see there, and the Wailing Wall goes way below the ground that you can't see. It starts with Solomon's Wall, the giant pillars of rocks, and then it starts going up, and notice how those rocks get smaller and different, because every time somebody conquered Jerusalem, they knocked over the wall and then rebuilt. But they didn't want to knock over all the wall, because that's too much work. So you knock over enough of the wall to get over the wall, do what you got to do, and then rebuild from there. And so time after time, you end up building a tell, you end up building a false hill when it's a city like this that's not real, but you're building upon it. If you can build upon what God's doing, you end up higher even in your destruction than if you start over. You end up building something that's taller by not dismissing all the broken places in your life and instead building upon them. Yeah. Yeah, man. What am I you can build on the broken places of your past. I know you want to take a bulldozer and just get rid of them and say this was too painful, this was too hard, this was too unfair, but you can build something off of the broken places that will take you places that you didn't know you could go, higher than you already would have. So sometimes you have to keep building to go higher. When life breaks you down, don't you dare quit. Don't you dare stop. You keep moving forward. You take what you do know, you take what you have learned, and you keep building one layer at a time, one brick at a time. You keep building because you can build on the broken places of your life. Listen, I know life is not fair, but you get back up and you keep moving forward. But, but this is where I really, I, you ever hear preachers say, like, I told you all that to say this? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I said all that to say this. <laughs> Bathsheba's story was not over. Right. And neither is yours. Yeah. See, because if I said to, I bet you almost 100% of this room, if I said, tell me about Bathsheba leading up to this message, the only thing you would have said about Bathsheba that you would have known about Bathsheba was the story of David and Bathsheba. That's probably it. You're like, I didn't even know she was mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So let me just unpack some stuff for a second. After her life is destroyed, she begins rebuilding. There's not much talk from then on after about her and David having much of a relationship. Because listen, just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean you just allow them to come right back into your life. They don't seem to have any other kids, blah, blah, blah. But she starts rebuilding. What does she have? She's got a pretty good brick right here. His name is Solomon. And she starts Raising Solomon. It ain't much, but it's all she's got. And she starts investing her time into Solomon. David is universally known in the Bible as an absentee father. He is the picture of a bad father. He's not there for his kids. Caused all kinds of problems later. So if David's not there, who's teaching Solomon the way of God? Who's teaching Solomon the way of God? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Come on, y'all. Bathsheba seems to be teaching him the things of God, raising him up. I know that God gave Solomon wisdom, 
But who gave Solomon the heart to ask God for wisdom? He could have asked for military power or might. He could have asked for world dominance. But he asked for wisdom to govern God's people properly. Who taught him that? Who taught him that? His brothers weren't acting like that. There was weird stuff going on with his brothers by this point. So his brothers weren't acting like that. Who taught him that? Bathsheba takes what she has that's been broken and starts molding it. She says, I can build something. I don't know what it'll be, but I can make something out of this. Now, this is where it gets so key. Because David had made Bathsheba a promise that said Solomon will be the next king. But, but in the story, David becomes an old man. He's already fought with some of his own children because of his absentee father issues. And he's already fought with some of them. And there's one son named Ahadjai uh, who's going to become the next king. And he's setting himself up to be the next king. David is on his deathbed. Like David's in no place to get up and go fight him or say much. David is dying now. He's an old man. Remember, Bathsheba's almost 30 years younger. So David's this old man. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you hear Bathsheba's name mentioned again. You don't hear it in between these two. Bathsheba comes up and says, hey, David, you know, you know your son is trying to make himself king right now, uh, Hanajai. You know he's trying to make himself king right now, but you promised that Solomon would be the next king. David starts taking account of what's all going on, takes Bathsheba's words, brings Solomon in, and ends up choosing him as the next king, even though he was not the eldest. I think there were three, if I'm not mistaken, brothers older than him that should be in that chair. Chooses Solomon. But wait, wait a minute. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you're grasping this. We celebrate Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon becomes the richest, wisest man to ever live in that time period. He becomes the one people come from all over the world. But who chose Solomon? Well, David did, of course. Well, yeah, sort of. Who is the one that actually brought Solomon's name back up when David was allowing it to not be there? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And she's rebuilding. She's rebuilding. She's making something. All of a sudden, Solomon becomes this man of incredible wisdom in this man who has a heart for God and, and he becomes famous all around the world. He's wise, he's rich, he leads the most prosperous times in Israel's history. But it started not with David, it started with Bathsheba molding Solomon and then taking the moment to say, hey David, don't forget about this boy. Don't forget about our son that you made a promise to. And then David doing the right thing in that moment. And what started in brokenness evolved into blessing because she kept building. Here, how about this? You're not impressed by that. So, let's take it to the next level. The very next time we hear Bathsheba mentioned was very shortly after that. So, she has worked with David, reminded him about, about Solomon. Solomon gets, becomes king. Shortly after that, the, the uh, Hajai, the, the other son of David, has this request from Solomon. And so, she is going to bring the request to her son, who is now king. He's been shortly been made king. He's probably a few days, maybe. Uh, he's new king. She's going to bring a report. Y'all ready for this? Yeah. And I want you to see this. This is the woman who has had her life destroyed by David, who is now rebuilding. Follow along with me. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak uh, to him for uh, Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her. This is, this is a king acting a little different than the previous king. 
The king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her. Come on, every mother in the room, give me an amen. amen. And sat down on his throne. Then check this out. He had a throne brought for the king's mother and sat down at his right hand. She went from ruins to royalty because she chose to keep building. What do I have in my hand I can keep building with? What do I have out of the broken places? I ain't got much, but I got Solomon. And I'll take Solomon and I will build something in Solomon that can become a blessing. I'm telling you that some of those kids that have caused you the worst pain will call you blessed. Will speak over you life. Some of the doctor's reports that you thought were going to destroy you, if you will build on it, will become the greatest testimony you ever have in your life. Then you'll still be sharing at 90 years old how God delivered you at 40 from this thing. If you will build off the broken places and don't let the broken places break you. And so she went from ruins to royalty. Oh, my goodness. Bathsheba. They say some people, it's arguable. Nobody knows for sure. But according to Hebrew history, they say that Bathsheba wrote Proverbs 31. Anybody ever heard of the Proverbs 31 woman? They say that she wrote that as an admonishment to, to Solomon of the way a woman is supposed to be. That might change the way you see a woman building when you read Proverbs 31. What a woman is supposed to be. That ideal woman that's, that's so unrealistic in some ways. But, but it's not just there. <coughs> if we stop there, that would be good enough. But did you know that Solomon, or I'm sorry, that, that Bathsheba is also mentioned in the New Testament? I was like, what? She's also mentioned in the New Testament. Huh. You know, there's this part in the beginning of Matthew that most of us just skim right over. We don't actually read uh, because it's the genealogies. And you're like, yeah, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, whatever. Okay, we skip to chapter 2, right? That's human nature. Don't do it, but, you should, but people do, right? So Matthew, chapter number 1. Verse number six says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, says, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother <laughs> had been Uriah's wife. I don't know who I'm talking to, but when you have been especially sexually violated and violated in a deep way like that, there's a sense that they're never going to get justice. There's a sense that God has forgotten about this, that, 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 that God acted like it was no big deal, that that's just the way life happens. There's this sense, and this just reminds me that God still knows that joker's name. He still knows what happened. He has not forgotten. And as much as we celebrate David, when you read about David in the New Testament in Matthew 1, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, every time David is going to be mentioned in that particular genealogy, you're going to hear about how, don't forget what David did. Don't forget his shortcomings. Don't forget what he did to Bathsheba. <laughs> Y'all with me? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not really about this. That's just cool. Get this. Bathsheba literally built herself into the lineage of Jesus. She built a king in Solomon who would then be a forebearer of the king of kings in Jesus Christ. If in the moment when everything is destroyed, if in that moment she says, well, life is just too hard and this is not fair and I'm just not going to do it. If she does that, she's not mentioned here. Because Solomon probably does not become the next king. God will use anyone he wants to use. God will raise somebody else up. God will do what he wants to do. 
But because she took the broken places in her life and started rebuilding, and she started building with what she had, which was Solomon, because everything else had been taken from her. She started rebuilding with Solomon. She literally built herself into the genealogy of the greatest man, the God-man who has ever lived, the one who split time in half, the one that we're still celebrating here today. She's part, she's one of his great-grandmothers. Right. <laughs> it's a little better than being the wife of Uriah. I'm not hating on Uriah, but she gets to be a great, 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 whatever grandmother of Jesus. That's not a bad gig either. Yeah. And so she takes the broken and she rebuilds on that broken place. I love yeah. it. She literally built herself into the lineage of Jesus. You see that? Gotta love that. It just went black. Went blank. Um, so what do you do? I'm done, I'm done. What do you do when you've lost everything? Whether it's this year with 2020, whether it's your health, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your kids, your finances. And everything you've built, and it's not about you, it's not because you did something wrong, it's not because you were whatever, because of something that's out of your control, it destroys it. What do you do? You rebuild with what you have left. You keep your trust in God Almighty. You believe that the blessings of God are still to come, and you start stacking bricks time after time after time again. It's not sexy. It's not exciting. God only knows how many years it was from time to time Solomon was born until he's finally made king and she's put beside him to the other things that went on. So she wrote Proverbs 31 or something like that. But you keep building and building and building. And you build a life that puts Jesus first off of the rubble that everything else has destroyed. And you will be higher because you are building a tell. Most of you didn't even know what that was leading into today. But now you do. Go build your tell. Come on, stand up with me around the room. Let's wrap up. <clears throat> Look at you. You're just awesome. Thank you, sir. Build your tell. Jesus allows you to go from ruins to royalty. In fact, I could take it a slight different way. Not only does he allow you to go from ruins to royalty, God is a specialist Jesus is a specialist in taking the broken places of your life and rebuilding on them. In fact, if you're honest, there was probably a time in your life when you gave your life to Christ and you were probably pretty broken in that moment. Yesterday was my conversion day. I celebrate that every year. It's the day I gave my life to Christ many years ago. It's this whole thing we do as a family. And it was my conversion day. I was so broken. I was so lost. I was hurting. Erica mentioned it during worship a few moments ago. It's out of those broken places that Jesus loves to build something new, yes. something ornate, something Amen. beautiful. When you give your brokenness to God, he can rebuild Amen. from that. That's the story of me. It's the story of so many people around you this morning. So before we go any further, there's some of you in this room and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you've been a follower, but you've never been a disciple. And today is that day you step over the limit and say, God, I'm giving you my whole life. All that I am, I give it over to you so that you can rebuild off of these broken places. So would you do me a favor? Just bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment. If that's you in this room and you say, Pastor, I need to surrender my life to Christ. I want to give him everything. I want him to rebuild on this broken spirit I have, this broken mind I have, this, this, this crushed life. David would cry out years later in the Psalms and say, this poor man cried out to the Lord and he saved him. Out of the muck and the mire of life, he would reach down and pick him up 
And he'll do the same thing with us today. So if that's you in this room, I want to pray over you. Just lead us all in a prayer in a moment. If that's you, would you stick your hand up and wave it at me so I can pray over you? Amen. 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 Come on, around this room, would you pray with me? Say, Jesus, Jesus. I'm a sinner, and I need you. So this morning, I surrender my life completely to you. I give you everything, all of the broken pieces, so that you can build something new. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the old preachers used to say, file this one away, get the tape, because if you don't need it now, you'll need it tomorrow. Well, we don't really have tapes anymore. It'll live on YouTube for a long time until YouTube kicks churches off. But this is one of those messages you, you need to file away. Because if it doesn't touch you now, it'll touch you next Amen. year, five years, or ten Amen. years. Life has a way of destroying the things that we build on. And when that happens, let's turn our focus onto the Lord and rebuild higher and stronger and better than it ever was. Build your tell. Come on, somebody give me an amen. 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 We invite our prayer team to go ahead and make their way out front in our communion team. If you want special prayer for anything this morning, we're going to invite you out of your seats in just a moment. You can come forward and we would love to agree with you and pray with you. Uh, it could be something to do with this message or it could be something very different. Uh, but if you feel led and you would like somebody to agree with you in prayer, we're going to give you that opportunity. As well as if you would like to receive communion, it's going to be available on my right and left underneath the screens. And somebody's going to be willing and able to officiate that with you there underneath the screens. Uh, if you're not coming forward, we're going to sing one last song. Do me a favor, don't leave unless you have to. We're going to sing one last song. And during this last song, let's just worship the Lord together. Let's praise him because he's either the God who has built on your brokenness or will build on your brokenness or somewhere between the two of those. But he is the God who builds out of the ruins and let's be people who build our tell. Come on, Pastor Jason, lead us in worship. And if you want prayer, come on forward. Thank you for watching this message today. We ask that you hit the subscribe button and share this message on all social platforms. Man, we are hoping that you were encouraged and blessed by what you heard. And we cannot wait to see you next time.